Mark writes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare the way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John, this is John the Baptist, did baptize in the wilderness and preach the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And there went out to him all the land of Judea and they of Jerusalem, and they were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, with a girdle of skin about his loins, and did eat locusts and wild honey, and preached, saying, There comes one mightier than I after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Indeed, I have baptized you with water. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost. It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. And straightway came coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And the angels ministered to him. Now after that John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to see here the story of your life and to be enriched by it. For any who does not know Christ, may he see the importance of turning by faith to Jesus. Oh God, I pray, please do your powerful work in the hearts of these people. Maybe there's a teenager here who just doesn't know Jesus, has been rejecting Jesus for weeks and months and maybe years. Open his heart, open her heart to the gospel, Lord. Maybe there's even an older person here, an adult, even a senior adult who does not know Christ. May this be the day of salvation. Lord, I pray for our children. Maybe there's a child here who um, is needing to accept Christ. May this story, may these stories that we look at the rest of this year into next year, as we read Mark's gospel together, may we all with one accord agree that you, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And may we agree that life is only found in believing in you. And may we all have this testimony that we are followers of Jesus. Do this work, Lord. I pray that you would continue to be with Kathy, give her strength in this difficult time. Um, unexpected to us, not unplanned by you. And I can only imagine that 
that there was some conversation and in heaven that it was time to bring David home. And that's exactly what you did. Bless her family. There are unbelievers in that family, Lord. What an incredible, wonderful blessing it would be to see them saved. So do your work and give Kathy strength um, and grace as she navigates these waters. Be with us. Help us to um, be a blessing to her and to encourage and support her uh, in this time. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever heard of Oscar Diggs? Is that name familiar to you? His name really is Oscar Zoaster Fadrig Isaac Norman Henkel Emmanuel Ambrose Diggs. He's a fictional character. You might have picked up on that. A ventriloquist in a circus where he rode hot air balloons. And he's known pretty widely by the first initials, well, the initials of his first name and his first middle name, Oscar Zoaster, Oz, as in we're off to see the wizard, the wonderful wizard of Oz. If you've read the books, and there's more than one, the Wizard of Oz was, you find out, a con man, originally from Omaha, Nebraska, who did magic tricks and with props. And in Oz, there was no one more powerful, no one greater than the wizard, until the little dog Toto pulled back the curtain, and Dorothy and her friends, the Tin Man, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow saw Oz for who he really was. I'm afraid this is what people think of Jesus. They think Christians are a little crazy, off to see a wizard. In fact, the little expression, gee whiz, is a blasphemy. Jesus, the wizard. They think Christians are involved in a hoax. They think of our Lord as a charlatan. His kingdom is fake and false. And actually, it's all true. The stories about Jesus contained in the Gospels are not fiction. They provide for us a story about Jesus from people who knew him very best or built off of carefully researched evidence and, of course, all along inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. The text before us, the Gospel of Mark, presents to us both Jesus and his ministry. Its author is John Mark, whose mother was a prominent woman in the Jerusalem church. It was in her home that the church gathered to pray for Peter when he was imprisoned by Herod. You remember the story. And he was let free by an angel and went and knocked on the door and Rhoda came, the servant, and said, it's Peter, and nobody believed her. That was at John Mark's home. He was a cousin of Barnabas, the companion of Paul for a while. Mark was likely the one who was at Gethsemane, who fled naked into the woods when Jesus was arrested. Mark also joined Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey, recorded in the book of Acts. 
but it was on that journey that Mark turned back. You remember later when Paul and Barnabas decided to go back and see the churches that they had established, what we now call Paul's second missionary journey. Paul ended up going with Silas because he and Barnabas were divided because Barnabas wanted to take John Mark with them again. And Paul said, absolutely not. Now, Mark did recover. I mean, he wrote one of the Gospels. And, and I believe Paul even later refers to Mark positively on a couple of occasions. And, and I believe that Mark is the one who wrote this Gospel account. I believe he wrote it sometime in the mid-50s to early 60s AD from Rome, probably to the church in Rome. Papias, an early church father who studied under the Apostle John. I mean, you, you kind of think of it in terms of family. You have Jesus being father, uh, and then John would be grandfather, or, uh, or Jesus would be father, John would be son, uh, Papias would be grandson, if you think about it that way. Papias is pretty close to Jesus. Papias is quoted by Eusebius in, the, in Eusebius's history of the church, that Mark was, quote, Peter's interpreter, end quote, recording Peter's remembrances of Jesus. Furthermore, Papias is this one from John, who second and third century writers confirm this identification. So this man says of Mark, he's an important guy later on. And when you think about and imagine Mark writing the words of middle-aged Peter. Remember, Peter was born around 1 B.C., so this is sometime around middle 50 A.D. at the earliest, maybe into the early 60s. Peter's a middle-aged man, and middle-aged Peter is talking about his friend. He's saying, let me tell you about my friend, Jesus. He talks about meeting Jesus for the first time. We see that here. He talks about the Lord's ministry. We see that here. Even some of his teaching, we find that here. Peter talks about Jesus is dying on the cross and how he denied the Lord. All of that's here. And then Peter preached often on how Jesus rose from the dead. All of that's here. And so I want us to study this book of Mark together. But I want us to listen to the words from the mouth of Peter as he speaks about his friend. Number one. Jesus is the greatest man who ever walked the earth. You find here, this is affirmed. First, by John the Baptist. He confirms that Jesus is the greatest. You, you see here, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and now, if that's maybe a summary statement, a thesis statement of the book, we find it beginning with this prophecy. Something Mark doesn't do a whole lot, but he begins with this prophecy from Isaiah and Malachi about this messenger who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. This messenger, we find out in verse 4, is John. John the baptizer, who baptized in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And all of Judea, maybe this is being... Uh, a little overly dramatic for effect. Not every single Judean, not every single person from Jerusalem. We know the Pharisees wouldn't be baptized by John. 
But they, all the people, it says, many people came from these regions to go out uh, and to be baptized in the Jordan River, a, a really small and almost insignificant and ugly river, truth be told. And they were confessing their sins. John was just an ordinary man, clothed with camel's hair, um, uh, a girdle around his waist of leather, and then he ate this paste, uh, a little bit of locusts, dried locusts uh, for protein, ground up with honey, poor man's food. And then he preached. Do you see here? Jesus is John's subject. Jesus is the subject of the gospel. Mark writes that Jesus is the Christ. And the conclusion that Peter will reach sometime before we get to chapter 9 in, in Mark 8.39, Peter publicly confesses, Jesus is this Messiah. And this identification is important because now Mark pulls all of these Old Testament passages about Messiah and he pulls them right into this contemporary moment of the preaching of Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. To the early church reader, this identifies Jesus as being part of the Godhead not son of God as an offspring of God. That's a mistake the Mormons make. It's not offspring of God. He is God. He is the son of God. He is the person of God represented to us in human form. This is a title of great importance. And by the way, they knew, the early readers knew that by calling himself son of God, by being son of God, they believed he was making himself to be equal with the Father. It's why they murdered him in Mark 14, 61 and 62. We learned that's the reason why they hated him. Not only is he the subject of the gospel, the prophets foretold of him. Mark points to John's ministry as a forerunner of Jesus. And here in this quote from Isaiah and Malachi, as it is written in the prophets, he wants you to understand this is a continuation of what you've been reading. And this helps us to see that the prophets themselves, these Old Testament men, foresaw the life and ministry of both John and Jesus. Even if here Mark deals mainly with John, a little with Jesus. Referring first to John's message in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, preaching, his ministry, preaching repentance, baptizing those who repent. And his influence is incredible. Even if not all of Jerusalem and Judea come to him, many do. Here he is, appearing to be the second coming of Elijah, wearing this hair shirt and leather girdle, eating this poor man's food. And the masses are responding to his preaching positively. It's just like Elijah has returned. And John attests that Jesus is greater than he is. You see in verses 7 and 8, he says, Jesus is mightier than me. I'm unworthy to unlatch his shoe. Do you remember who unlatches the shoes of others? Who does that? Think about John's gospel. Jesus one night took a towel and wrapped it around his waist and he took the sandals off of his disciples' feet and he washed their feet. Who unlatched the shoes of others? Someone in a home. It was the lowest slave. And John says, I'm not even worthy to be the lowest slave. 
for Jesus. He's mightier than I am. I'm, I'm not worthy to unlatch his shoes. And his work is greater than mine. I'm baptizing you with water. He's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Ghost. It's pretty incredible. So the prophets foresee him. He's the subject of the gospel. And now we have this beautiful truth. The Father publicly affirms. So we have John affirming. The Father affirms in verse 9. Jesus comes from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan and straightway coming up out of the water. He sees the heavens opened and then a spirit as if it were a dove descending upon him. And there comes a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The baptism of Jesus was different from other baptisms. Don't get caught up in the fact that John is preaching the remission of sins and he's baptizing for the remission of sins. Jesus did not sin. He was not a sinner, and he did not need to have his sins remitted. The baptism of John was one of repentance. And by the way, Matthew 3.15 explains that for us in case we get confused. Our own baptism is not like this. It's symbolic of what the Lord Jesus did for us. We go down into the waters of baptism as if, as if we are still dirty with our sins, and we come out of them cleansed. This is what the blood of Jesus has done. Cleansing us from sin. And so our own baptism is just symbolic of what Jesus did for us. No, this baptism is different because this established Jesus' messianic mission. It's proven by the Spirit's descent. Jesus comes up out of the Jordan River and the Spirit of God descends upon him. And Mark says it was like a dove descends to the ground. As if it had been a dove is the way he puts it. The Spirit comes upon Jesus, something that apparently people were able to see. And then verbalized by the Father's words, the voice comes out of the sky. It happens on a couple of occasions. This is my son. You see this? Jesus is my son, the Father states. There's the identification between God the Father and Jesus. He's the beloved son. He's special. And the Father says, I am delighting in him. I am pleased with him. No other man has ever had these words spoken of him before. When you get to heaven, um, it is our hope for all of us that we will hear our Lord say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We hope to hear those words, but none of us will ever hear these words. Some of you know the website sharperiron.com friend of mine started that website years and years and years ago. We were involved in a little group called Youth Imperatives and uh, helping youth pastors train teenagers. None of us really knew what we were doing ourselves. And uh, we had a magazine. I remember uh, we had our magazine came out maybe three times before people figured out we need a website. Uh, this isn't working. This is the old way. And we had a website for a while and we had a blog. And back then, you know, blogs, nobody knew what to do with blogs. They were brand new. And it didn't matter what you said in the blog. Everybody said you were unsaved. I mean, it, that's how the, all the conversations ended up. Uh, uh, we would talk about teenage stuff. It would end up on either the Bible versions or music. And the end result was you were unsaved. Whichever side of the equation you were on didn't matter. Everybody was unsaved. That's how, that's, it was terrible. And, and my friend said to me, we need to, we need to put together a better website. So he, he formed Sharper Iron. And for a while, it was really pretty, pretty interesting. He actually went off to start a church in Colorado. He gave up 
He gave up the website completely. I don't know if you're aware of this. Some of you know the website I'm talking about. A few years ago, our church was offered the opportunity to become the hosts of this website. And uh, I can tell you, I turned them down so fast. <laughs> um, um, I am no longer allowed to post on the website. You say, Pastor, what did you say? How are you no longer allowed? I, if I went on there today, this is I have been banned from the website for about the last 12 years. Uh, if I try to post on there, nothing comes up. And this is the reason why. Because my friend went to a Christian bloggers convention and they had a picture of an, had an image of an angel. It was, a, it was actually a statue of an angel. It was at a church somewhere. I guess they were using it some sort of prop. They had this big wooden statue of an angel. And, and he took out a picture of himself kneeling beneath the angel. And on the website, somebody had put, this is my beloved blogger in whom I am well pleased. And I said to my friend, you are blasphemy. That's blasphemy. None of us have the right to hear those words. And then I got banned. And then they offered me the website. I guess I could have unbanned myself. Only Jesus, because he's greatest. Not only that, he couldn't even be stopped by Satan. Look at verse 12. Immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Mark doesn't explain the temptations of Jesus. We get those in from the other Gospels. But we see here the most important part in verse 12. The Spirit is the one controlling him. And in some sort of uh, upside-down moment for the ministry of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity has given up control of himself to the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit always takes the back seat, but in this case, the Spirit's in control. And there's guidance for us there. As we follow Jesus' example and give the Spirit control over us. And because of this, Jesus overcomes the temptation, the 40 days test of fasting in the wilderness, the place where the wild animals are. And are these demonic forces? There are some who speculate that's the only reason they're mentioned. Maybe it's just describing the wilderness as the place of the wild beasts. I actually lean, although I, I take the scriptures very literally, I lean here that they are referring to demonic forces. Wild animals throughout scripture are also often a reference to demonic beings. And then you have the angels come and the angels take care of Jesus. He overcomes the temptation of Satan because of the spirit of God. And after he successfully rebuffs Satan, God shows his favor upon him again. The father gives him the angels to succor him in his hour of need. Now imagine this person. He's the greatest to ever walk the earth. No one's like him. John the Baptist affirms that Jesus is the greatest. And then the Father himself affirms that Jesus is the greatest. And then when challenged by Satan, Jesus again confirms that he is greatest. And for all of us then, the question is, do you believe that? Is that what you believe? Can you read this passage of scripture and in your heart say, yes, absolutely, I know, without doubt, Jesus really is greatest. Everything begins here, ladies and gentlemen. This is the introduction of Peter's story. Let me tell you about the greatest man to ever walk the earth. He then says, number two, 
he had the greatest message. Number two, his message is the best of all that have ever been told. Jesus' message is the gospel of God. Now, in verse 14, after John was put in prison, Jesus came. Look at verse 15, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' message is this gospel. His sermon came at the appointed time. At the time, Jesus states, was fulfilled. I think Mark indicates here, the beginning of Jesus' ministry coincides with the imprisonment of John the Baptist. There's this kind of overshadowing that takes place. Moreover, this indicates that God, everything God wanted to happen has now occurred. The fullness of time was come, as Paul writes in Galatians 4. Israel's political and moral situation had reached its apex. It was, it was now at the very moment of conception when Jesus would burst forth onto the scene. Rome's power and influence was, was nearing its peak. And John's ministry, John the Baptist's own ministry, was at its highest. And at this point, as John is being imprisoned, Jesus now comes onto the scene... Preaching the gospel. And what's the gospel Jesus preaches? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. I remember I had a professor in college who got upset with uh, John MacArthur's book, um, The Gospel According to Jesus. Uh, There's a group out of Dallas Seminary who decided they were going to write a rebuttal. And so they wrote a book. uh, Zane Hodges wrote Absolutely Free. Uh, rebuttal to MacArthur's book, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus. Poor Zane Hodges, uh, he's with the Lord now. He, he and, and I say this with some respect of uh, Zane Hodges, he, he was not the man to write the book. Uh, now, Charles Ryrie also wrote So Great Salvation, also as a rebuttal of MacArthur. Neither of them were prepared. MacArthur does, he doesn't pull punches. I don't know if you've noticed that, uh, if you've ever read any of his works, but You don't box with MacArthur and pull your punches because MacArthur punches hard. He punches to win. And so MacArthur then wrote the gospel according to the apostles, and and, uh, it was a bloodbath. It was embarrassing. He would then quote a long passage from uh, uh, Ryrie or Hodges, and then he would quote scripture. And then he would quote them, and then he could just show, this is just not working, guys. You, You need to give up this idea that you have. And my professor was kind of upset with MacArthur, and he didn't like MacArthur's books. And he said, you show me. And he was, he, was, he was at the end of a long, vitriolic lecture on the gospel according to Jesus. He says, you show me one place in the gospels where Jesus preached the gospel. And I raised my hand, and in my obnoxious... My children didn't get this from me. They took after, they take after my wife, actually. Uh, because I, I, uh, I'm probably more in personality like John MacArthur in my, in my youthful... I'm not like this today, you understand? But in my, youth, in my youthfulness, I said, Come follow me. Friends, that's the gospel. That is the gospel. If Jesus says, Come follow me, And you follow him, you are believing the gospel. You're accepting the gospel. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. What's Jesus saying? Most of the people didn't see it at all. They're overlooking him. 
as Isaiah says, he's, he, he, he looks like any other man. He, he's, he's nothing, he's not beautiful, Isaiah 53. He, he's not to behold or to look at. He, he's not like a king. He's just a man. And the world is overlooking him. It says in John's gospel, he came into his own and his own received him not. But friends, the king of heaven was on the earth at the very doors saying, follow me. He was preaching to them the gospel. Come now. The kingdom's here because the king is here. And I'm going to tell you something. You better obey your king. You had better obey the king. Jesus' kingly sermon required two things. He said you must repent. I don't know why all of this is on my mind this morning. I had another professor. I'm in professor world right now. I don't write these out. They just come to me. as I, So he said, you know, he was a hyper dispensationalist. He said, he said, now the synoptic gospels, they say repent. They're written to the Jews because the Jews are repenting of their Judaism. But to the Gentiles, it's just believe. And that's the gospel of John. You don't find the word repent in the gospel of John anywhere. By the way, it's not there. The gospel of John is written to the Gentiles. You don't have to repent. You just have to believe. I, I don't know. There's stretches of the epistles where Paul and Peter and others tell Gentiles to repent when they believe the gospel. But these people, if you understand that Mark is writing to a mix of Jews and Gentiles, not just a Jewish church, but a mix of Jews and Gentiles, then Mark's gospel from Jesus is relevant. Even to the Gentiles, you must repent of your sins. You must turn away. I, I know literally the word repent means a change of mind. And if you take freshman Greek, you learn that the word here means change of mind. You have to go a little farther in your language studies. You find that the ancient world, they didn't think change of mind when they thought of the word repent. They just means to turn. You turn from your sin. This is really kind of a continuation of what John had been preaching in some way. Because John had been telling them to turn from their sin. And this literally means to turn away from sin and self. A rejection of my sinfulness. It's an admission, friends. This is what 1 John 1 is talking about. It's not saying I've never sinned. And it's not saying I have no sin. It's saying I am a sinner. Verse 9. It's confessing. I am sinful. I sin all the time. Even as a believer, I'm a sinner. We should all be there. Believers in Christ are confessors of sin. And this first admission is an admission of one's guilt before God. I'm a sinner. It's a rejection of self. I need a savior. I can't save myself. Friends, do you realize that the pull of the world's religions is the idea that somehow you can save yourself? Christianity, biblical Christianity, is the only one that says, no, you can't. You can't do it. Only God can do it. And what Jesus is preaching here is an admission. You must repent of your sin, that you are sinful, and that you cannot save yourself. I had a friend about 25 years ago. 
Actually, a couple of the hymns he wrote are in our hymnals. Um, he has really gone through, he's had a really rough life, actually. He was teaching at a Christian college. Um, and, and I was sitting in his office one day when he was a professor there. And he said to me, Matt, he said, you know, I remember the day I got saved. I said, really? Tell me about it. He goes, I was a teenager. The pastor was preaching. And he was preaching on this subject. And he said, I... I went forward and I knelt at the altar right right base of the pulpit. And this is what I prayed. Oh, Jesus, I want to be a Christian. I want to go to heaven. But I'm not repenting of my sins. Now, I knew the guy. I thought pretty well. And I went, well, that's weird. What? Nah, that's weird. And I just kind of wrote it off in my mind as if it's nothing. And then all the baggage of his life came out. I, I don't know if he's a believer or not. I genuinely mean that. I, I think he is. I don't, I don't know. That's between him and the Lord. I just know that his testimony includes this statement, I am not repenting of my sins. My friends, that's not salvation. That's not the gospel. You can't save yourself. You can't be good enough for God. You can't say enough of the rosary. You can't pray. You can't light enough candles. I think I told you a week or two ago, I was in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Good Friday as a teenager in high school. We had this girl, Carla. She was ditzy. One of my friends said, hey, Carla, see all those candles? You got to go blow those out. So Carla's over there going blowing out candles in St. Patrick's Cathedral on Good Friday, and you would have believed the uproar of the Catholic priests there in New York City. Ah! Somebody, you know, and of course all the people are all upset too. Why? Because that's how you get your loved one out of hell. <laughs> you, you, you're blowing out my candle. You're, you're, you're making my mom, you're my dad stay in hell no longer. See, you, you, they think you can work your way there. You can't work your way there. You, you, you can't be born and live and die and be born and live and die and be born and live and die and just be kind of better each time until you reach this kind of state of nirvana. It, it, that, that's not true. It doesn't exist. That's a lie the devil told and took an entire continent to hell with him. You, you can't somehow uh, eat the flesh of your enemies. Sorry for being a little gross, but this is what cannibalism is. The idea is you're destroying their spirit or you're, or you're actually swallowing their spirit into you. You can't do that and somehow become spiritually big and strong enough to enter into some sort of state of goodness. You can't sail your boat to enough islands hoping to finally meet, uh, get to Valhalla. All these religions, whether, whether they were in Africa or India or, or in the Scandinavian world, all of these religions were false. And the pagan cults and, that took over Europe and, and the Celts and the Gauls, the, the Galatians, Gauls, they, as they moved up into what's now Britain and built Stonehenge, all of those religions are all about doing enough to somehow earn some unknown God's favor so that I can be good enough. It's a rejection of that. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't be good enough. You're not good enough. Repent and believe the gospel. 
If I'm turning from sin and self, I am turning to Jesus. And I'm saying, you alone, you are the one who can save me. So it's an admission. I can't, I'm a sinner and can't save myself. And then it's a confession. Jesus is my Lord. He's my kurios, my master. That's what the word Lord means. If you'll confess with your mouth, Jesus is the, the kurios, the Lord, the master, the ruler, the king. He's the one in charge of everything. This is my confession. He's my savior. I can't save myself. He saved me. This is Jesus' message, and there's no message greater. He's the greatest man who ever lived. Now he's preaching the greatest message ever heard. And this is why he calls us to ring it from the housetops, from the rooftops, to all the world. And he even selects some special ones to go to other places and bring this message. Let me tell you. Let me say across the lands, Jesus saves. Jesus saves. I'm going to shout it to sinners far and wide. Jesus saves. Hear the message from God's word. The greatest story that's ever been heard. Here it is. Repent and believe the gospel. And that's why Jesus came preaching it. That's Jesus' method. Verse 14, he came into Galilee preaching. I love it. He went to the place where the sinners were. There's kind of an advent-like quality. Advent, uh, Jesus coming. We, the first advent, Jesus came to earth as a baby. Christmas, we call that the advent. There's a second advent coming when Jesus will return to earth as king over the world and establish his earthly kingdom. That's the second advent. There's kind of an advent-like com coming here, right? He comes into Galilee. He, he comes to Galilee. He, there's an intentionality to his actions. It's like Jesus has his Bible under his arm and he's walking up into his pulpit, right? This is kind of how you get the image here, an intentionality to his coming into Galilee, the place where the Jews and the Gentiles were mixing, fits so well with Mark's intended audience, and it fits us well today. He comes just to people, preaching this gospel to them, declaring his message. That's what the word preaching here has the idea behind, is to declare. He's calling people, come, follow me. That's what authentic preaching does. He's preaching this gospel of the kingdom, saying, come be subject to me. Join my realm. Leave the dominion of Satan and of darkness and of sin and join my kingdom. Come be one of my subjects. And now the call goes across the land. And my question for you is, have you answered that call? Is Jesus, who is the greatest, your Lord, your master, your ruler, your king? I preached on Romans 10, 9 and 10, back when we were in our other building. Some of you were there that day. This was probably 14 years ago. There was a lady there who was... Uh, had grown up in Southern Baptist churches. This is what she told me, her own confession afterward in the parking lot. She was very agitated at the end of the sermon. Very, very agitated. And I said uh, to her, I noticed she was angry. It isn't hard. I, I've made it a habit all through my life of making people angry. I know what it looks like. I'm very good at it, trying to be worse at it, but I can do it. 
right? She was mad. So I went over to the car. I said, ma'am, obviously you're upset. Is there something I said that offended you? She said, you know, I've been a Christian all my life. I've, I've learned as a pastor, that's a big uh-oh sound in my head that goes off when I hear that. I've been a Christian all my life. Okay. All right. I've never heard anybody tell me that I have to say that Jesus is my king, my God. I've never heard that. And she said, moreover, I'd, I've never made that confession. I'm not even sure I believe it. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, and I knew this was going to make it worse, like, like gasoline on a fire. Ma'am, then you aren't a believer. You don't know the Lord. I just urge you to declare him to be your master, to come and follow him. She got in her car and drove away. I've never seen her again. She was just a visitor that day. Left angry. Went and told everybody, I'm sure we preach some weird gospel. We call it the gospel. He's the greatest of all, preaching the greatest message of all. Will you listen to it? You know, I, I told Kathy Friday night, I sat down on her couch, her chair beside her. She was on the couch. I was in a chair beside her. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm sad and disappointed. And, and anytime you have somebody pass away unexpectedly, there's a shock and a, and a sudden grief that comes. But having had time to think about it, um, I, I immediately knew David was with the Lord. That, and because we didn't have that family relationship, Terms like he wasn't my bro physical brother. I was grieving, but it wasn't the same kind of grief. You know, you know what I mean. That it would be if it was your husband or your or your dad or something like that. And so I had a little clarity of mind and I was able to think on the drive home and on the ride over to her house. They don't live far from us. And got over there and I said, I'm sad and I'm disappointed. I'm sad because I'm I'm grieving because David is with the Lord. It's good for him, bad for us. I'm disappointed because I had so many things I wanted to do with him. You know, he and I built this little rock face on the back of the wall here. He did, he was the brains and the brawn behind the operation. I was the day laborer. He said, put the rock here, put the glue here. Okay, and that's what I did. He was the genius behind it. And I... I was just talking to Becky the other day. I've got about five building things I like to do around the building. And I said, when David gets back, I'll get with him and we'll get those things done. That opportunity's gone. Just disappointing. But I'm also disappointed because the other things I want to do with him were talk about how to do better in our evangelism. How, how can we do better as a church? He had talked about retiring and um, he hadn't decided whether they were going to stay here uh, or whether they were going to move and help a church. He had talked to my dad about possibly going into that pastor replacement program where they help churches find pastors. Um, and, and so that was a possibility. Um, Kathy even mentioned that the other night as one of the possibilities they've been talking about. I'm just so disappointed. 
But you know something? David's gone. He's not here. But you are here. You're here. And everything we need to do this ministry is in this room right here. And this is what he did. And as an example to all of us, this is what we should do. I'm sure we'll sing this this week at his funeral. His favorite hymn, Brightly beams our Father's mercies from the lighthouse evermore. But to us he gives the keeping of the lights along the shore. You ever sent him an email? It was lower lights dot something or other. That was his email. He sang that hymn here a couple of times. He loved that song. That's our job. That's our task. This is what Jesus is doing. He's the greatest one who ever walked the earth with the greatest message that was ever given. And now we have this opportunity. We have this message to share to the world that Jesus saves. He's not going to have that opportunity anymore. That opportunity for him is ended. But for us, it's still here. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's pulling back the curtain on the world. The world is the charlatan. The world's call is the false one. The world is Oz the terrible. Jesus isn't like that at all. He's come saying, follow me. And I imagine Peter standing up in front of a group of people not unlike ourselves and saying, you know, 30 odd years ago, my friend called me to come and follow him and I went. My friend, will you follow him too? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to share this message with your people. Thank you, Lord, that you have given it to us. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. We don't deserve it. And while our dear brother David is celebrating his reception of that message with you, there are many in our community who don't know him. May we, like our Lord, be willing to tell others about him. Before I finish praying, keep your heads bowed for a moment. How many of you say, Pastor? I don't know Christ. I haven't answered the call to that message. I haven't responded. I've I've not admitted my guilt before him. I've not confessed his rule over my life. I've not accepted the gospel. I'm not saved. I want to pray for you. Raise your hand. Pastor, pray for me. I'm not saved. Raise it up. Keep your heads bowed. Don't look around. Give people their privacy. If you raise your hand, if you say, Pastor, I'm not saved, you raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Anybody at all like that? Don't wait, friend. Don't hold back. You say you're saved. I praise God for that. I don't want you to respond to this part of it, but are you actively seeking to share your faith with others? Is this message that you responded to the message that you share with others? Lord, please take this into our hearts and change us by it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The pianist will play a hymn of invitation. You just go to the Lord as she plays.